Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. We are in week 10 of our Catholic study, and we will be discussing penance and purgatory today. So let's just get started. So let's see if we have to answer the basic question. What happens when a Catholic dies? So both the Protestants and Catholics share a belief in the existence of heaven, which is eternal life with God, and the existence of hell, which is eternal death and separation from him. However, the Catholic Church teaches that there is a third place you may have to go if necessary. This place is where the souls of those destined for heaven, because they died with either unresolved sin or spiritual imperfection, they have to go here to this third place in order to be cleansed. Imperfection cannot enter a perfect utopia, therefore the souls remain at this place until they are completely clean before they can enter heaven. This place is called purgatory. So in their catechism, paragraph 1022, they say this, Each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ, either entrance into the blessedness of heaven through a purification or immediately, or immediate and everlasting damnation. At the evening of life, we shall be judged on our love. Hmm, all right, so our love is determining where we are going. That's an interesting concept that we'll discuss later on. Paragraph 1024 says this about heaven. What is heaven? It is this perfect life with the most holy trinity, this communion of life and love with the trinity, with the Virgin Mary, the angels, and all the blessed. This place is called heaven. Heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings, the state of supreme, definitive happiness. Paragraphs 1030 and 1032 say this about purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gave the name of this purgatory as a final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The Church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent, the tradition of the Church, by reference to certain texts of Scripture which speak of a cleansing fire. Now, the Scriptures they refer to are 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 1 Peter 1.7. We'll, let me finish the catechism, and then we'll go into those scriptures ourselves. Carrying on, it says, As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that, before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, 
but certain others in the age to come. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, already mentioned in sacred scripture. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sin, which is from 2 Maccabees 12.46, which is not in the Protestant Bible. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers in suffrage for them, above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that, thus purified, they may attain the beatific vision of God. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Let us help and commemorate them. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? And they're referring to Job chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. So now let's go back to the scriptures they referenced here. So they first referenced 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. And what does that say as a reference point for us? If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, is that literal or is that figurative? We'll come back to that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here again, they use that same term, as though tested by fire. Is that literal or is that figurative? So we'll definitely look into that into more detail here. From the Council of Trent, Session 15, Canon 11, they say this, God does not always remit the whole punishment due to sin together with the guilt. God requires satisfaction and will punish them. The sinner, failing to do penance in this life, may be punished in another world and so not to cast off eternally from God. Let's see if that stands with Scripture later. In their Catechism, paragraph 1033 and 1037, they say this about hell. We cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love Him. But we cannot love God if we sin gravely against Him, against our neighbor or against ourselves. He who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Our Lord warns us that we shall be separated from him if we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor and the little ones who are his brethren. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means separating ourselves from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, 
is necessary, and persistence in it until the end. The Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 30. If anyone saith that, after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted, and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged, either in this world or in the next in purgatory, before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. So it begs the question, what exactly is penance? So I'm going to reference something that is talked about on this very topic from CatholicStraightAnswers.com, and this is what their researchers say. As Vatican II stated, the Church has consistently believed in a purification of the soul after death. This belief is rooted in the Old Testament. In the second book of Maccabees, we read of how Judas Maccabeus offered sacrifices and prayers for soldiers who had died wearing amulets, which were forbidden by the law. Scripture reads, Turning to supplication, they prayed that the sinful deed might be fully blotted out. And thus Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be freed from the sin. This passage gives evidence of the Jewish practice of offering prayers and sacrifices to cleanse the soul of the departed. Rabbinic interpretation of scripture also attests to the belief. In the book of the prophet Zechariah, the Lord spoke, I will bring the one-third through fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will test them as gold is tested, which is chapter 13, verse 9. Based on this, the school of Rabbi Shammai interpreted that this passage is a purification of the soul through God's mercy and goodness, preparing it for eternal life. A similar passage is found in the Book of Wisdom, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, which is also not in our Bible either. In Sirach, chapter 7, verse 33, which again is not in our Bible, it says, Withhold not your kindness from the dead. This is interpreted as imploring God to cleanse the soul. In sum, the Old Testament clearly attests to some kind of purification process of the soul of the faithful after death. The New Testament has references about a purging of the soul, or even about heaven for that matter. Rather, the focus is on preaching the gospel and awaiting the second coming of Christ, which only later did the writers of sacred scripture realize could be after their own deaths. However, in Matthew 12, 32, Jesus' statement that certain sins will not be forgiven either in this world or in the world to come at least suggests a purging of the soul after death. Pope St. Gregory who died in year 604 A.D., stated, As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that, before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in the age that we are in, 
nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others only in the age to come. The Council of Lyons, which happened in 1274, likewise affirmed this interpretation of our Lord's teaching. So, if we can make a rough guess as to why they seem so different from our view, is because of where they're referencing their supposed Word of God from. They're getting it from books of the Bible that we don't have and that are not inspired Word. Therefore, they contradict itself. And also, like I had mentioned earlier, was the scripture meant to be taken literally, or was it meant to be taken figuratively? Likewise, in what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 32, it doesn't necessarily say there's anything after death. It just means that there's no way to be forgiven from this. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something very different. And it, when it calls God a fire, it calls him a consuming fire. It doesn't call him a purifying fire. He is a consuming fire. There's something very different between something that consumes and something that purifies, because if it consumes, it is completely eaten up, right? But if it's purified, it retains its form, but just a better form. So there's a very different interpretation from that. Now, there's one thing that they use that they mention here to benefit those who have died in their journey into purgatory. There is one thing that they use within the Catholic Church that can benefit somebody else. And the biggest one that they do is indulgences. So what are indulgences exactly? Well, indulgences were one of Martin Luther's and the other reformers' major issues with the Catholic Church. Basically, you could buy an indulgence from the church once a day at most by doing certain prayers, devotions, going on certain pilgrimages, or literally buying them with money. The Council of Trent outlawed them due to abuse of church power, but they were brought back in the year 2000 by Pope John Paul II in order to celebrate the new millennium. Today, by giving in the name of charity, going to confession, or reciting specific prayers, you can work toward getting one. And they either are a get-out-of-jail-free card for you, or they're a get-out-of-jail-free card for somebody else. Indulgences are unique in that they can reduce or erase any punishment instantly without any sacrament needed. According to church teaching, even after sinners confess their sins to the priest, and he speaks absolution on them, which is declaring that the sins are forgiven by his authority as the priest, and they also say that a certain number of Our Fathers are necessary or Hail Marys are necessary as penance, they will still face this punishment after death in purgatory before they enter into heaven. Indulgences can also be gained, like we were saying, for somebody else, living or dead. This helps a loved one get out of purgatory faster by reducing their time there by days, months, or even years. Catholic Straight Answers, again, has something to say about this. We believe that 
When we sin, we commit a free-willed offense against God, ourselves, and our neighbor. God, in his love and mercy, forgives the guilt of any sin for which we are truly sorry. However, God, in his justice, requires that we expiate sin, or heal the hurt caused by sin. We call this the temporal punishment for sin. For example, if I damage my neighbor's car, I can sincerely plead for forgiveness, and my neighbor can genuinely forgive me. Yet, I will also, in justice, have to pay for the repair of the car. Well, during our life, we perform penances here to expiate sin and purify our souls. If we die with venial sins, we will expiate these sins in purgatory. Since sin has a communal dimension, in other words, sin affects the whole body of the church, salvation also has a communal dimension. This is why we pray for each other's intentions at Mass or privately. From the earliest days of the church, individuals have offered prayers and good works for the salvation of sinners. So sins can be forgiven through either indulgences, or they can be forgiven in an otherworldly place that they can't seem to describe, called purgatory. So what does the Bible say about these things? Much like last week's discussion on the biblical basis for the Mass, the doctrine of penance and purgatory are from a poor translation of the original language, or a poor understanding of the context of which is being spoken of in a particular verse. Not to mention the books of the Bible they're referencing that are not inspired word. Not all language in the Bible is literal, and not all is figurative. If we took everything literally, then that would mean that Jesus was literally a door, or he was literally a loaf of bread. Right? He said he was the bread of life, right? So that means he would be literally a loaf of bread. Or he was literally a grapevine. We know that's not the case, right? Because not everything in the Bible is meant to be taken literally. Some things are figurative or symbolic. The parables he taught were not just simple, entertaining stories that the audience of the day could understand. But by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit... These ideas and illustrations are rich in depth and knowledge that can only be fully understood through the lens of the Holy Spirit and His revelation to us. One must study the Word with the proper context, and this is mostly done by reading the chapters before and after a particular section of Scripture in order to get the full idea of what's being conveyed by the Holy Spirit. To believe that there is a place called purgatory, we believe the same sin that Satan told Eve in Genesis 3-4, in that a Catholic will not surely die. We don't want to fall into that same camp. A few facts that we have to discuss here. So I have, for today, I have six facts that are countering this discussion. Fact number one is there is no such thing as purgatory. Again, just like the Mass, this idea denies the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ 
upon the cross. His death cleansed us of all sins for all time, without any need to purge sins after death. It is simply just not necessary, because God has already done it for us. And by us saying that what he did was not enough, is denying the purpose for why Christ came. Or not having a grasp of the real reason why he came. Therefore, we are still in our sins. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. If you're healed, you don't need any more healing. If you're healed, you're done healing. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. He bore all the sins. Doesn't say some. He bore all the sins. That is why when Jesus was on the cross and he was done with the work that he came to do, what did he say? It is finished. There is nothing else required. 1 John 2 verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Second fact. The Bible never talks about purgatory. Scripture clearly states that your spirit is either in your body or with the Lord, going to heaven or hell. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 26. And this is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. I know we've read this before. So I'm not going to read it to you again, but again, this understanding that when you are dead, you're going up or you're going down. There is no in-between. If there was, wouldn't you think Christ would have mentioned it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. You see, there's a difference. Body, Lord, right? For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. There is no in-between. There is being in the body or with the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Both directions, meaning there's only two. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. He only mentions two different places. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If we're going to a purgatory, which is where your soul is just going to be burning and purified, which we don't even know what that looks like because it's not real, that's not a cleansing. Because it says that cleansing requires blood. So how does that make any sense? It contradicts itself. And the Bible does not contradict itself. So therefore, this understanding is not biblical. Fact number three. Penance is unbiblical. Like the Mass, it is the concept that you have to work for your salvation in some way, rather than it being an act of mercy or grace by a sovereign Lord. Salvation belongs to God alone through Christ alone. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Everything has to line up just so, and right now it is not lining up in the Catholic Church. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Fact number four. The Catholic Church poorly translated portions of the Bible to read penance, an action of self-punishment to make up for sins. But it is correctly translated as penitence, the state of feeling sorrow or regret for sin. Or it is supposed to be translated repentance, an action of humbling oneself and submitting to God's will. So in all those times that the Catholic Church read their Bible and it says penance, the actual word in the original language is actually the word for penitence or repentance. Very different understandings, even though the words are similar. So it is not the same word. Now, where can we look at a couple of examples that they're doing this? Now, if you happen to be able to look at a Catholic Bible and use this as a reference point, go ahead, but I'm just going to read you what it says in my Bible. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 5. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed, and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, 
even an acceptable day to the Lord? So in my translation, it says, a day for a man to humble himself. Your translation might say, a day for a man to repent. But in the Catholic Bible, there it will say in theirs, a day for a man to do penance. So very different understandings here. And one word makes a huge difference. Luke chapter 13, verse 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It doesn't say do penance, it says repent. Luke 15, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. You get the idea? There's plenty more where that came from, but those are just some examples to give you here. Fact number five. Indulgences, likewise, are nowhere mentioned in the Bible. No man or institution has the power to forgive sins. This system practices empty rituals and babblings to earn forgiveness. Knowing that you can buy forgiveness for future sins encourages a license to sin. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Isn't that kind of what they're doing? They're going to say that it's not useless, but it is, it is indeed useless. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Indulgences are in vain. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 2, and verses 15 through 23. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then go down to verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, 
or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17-20 through 20. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of the good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15-16 through 16. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And finally, fact number six. No man or institution has the power to affect someone else's salvation. Since there is no purgatory, praying for the dead or using indulgences is a worthless practice. A futile attempt. Deuteronomy Chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. 
for those nations whom you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Psalm chapter 68, verses 19 through 20. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation, Selah. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belongs escapes from death. Mark chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. He's talking to the Jews of his day, but he's also talking to the Catholic Church. They're following in the footsteps of the Pharisees. Acts chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And unfortunately, the Catholic Church feels that they have to offer their soul for the sins. There is no more any sacrifice. It has been completely accomplished, and we are clean in the eyes of God if we are in Christ Jesus because of him, not anything we did. So this concludes our look into indulgences and in purgatory. I hope this was helpful to you and will help give you some scriptural foundation on the proper understanding of these things. So again, I caution you not to look at outside sources for biblical truth. The Bible itself can tell you everything it needs to know about how to live. But that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.